Welcome to the Ponder New Podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Myalis, and we're working through the book of Acts. And we're actually going to uh, skip a little bit ahead to chapter 16 and Paul's visit to the city of Philippi. And uh, we're going to meet uh, a bold woman there. And then we're also going to reflect uh, on a really powerful story of Paul putting it all on the line for somebody else. And really, again, what, what Christian boldness and faith uh, look like. So, without further ado, we'll get pondering together. From Acts 16. We set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. A certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. There's so much that happens in chapter 16. I'm only going to focus on sort of part of it. And the first part is going to be about this woman named Lydia. And we don't know uh, very much about her, but Luke drops this one detail that just should explode off the page for us. And that is that she is a dealer of purple cloth. Now, you might not think that that's like anything that's special, right? Because we can go to the store and there's like every color imaginable uh, of every shape and size and cut on the shelf, even at a sort of a low-end retail place. But in uh, the biblical times, purple was a very special cloth. Uh, And and purple was actually made from a particular snail that the snail was harvested and then crushed. And and out of it, there would be this purple liquid that they would use to dye clothing and uh, basically it was a monopoly kind of trade it was, this is kind of how the Phoenicians rose to power actually and um, and it ended up being a very expensive cloth that only uh, the wealthy could afford so what what this all means is that Lydia is running a transnational corporation of a luxury good Again, Lydia is the, she's a dealer. So, I mean, she's literally buying and selling. Who knows? She might even own ships, but she is dealing every day with people from all uh, sort of around the eastern part of the Mediterranean. So a very competent, uh, skilled woman. And if you needed even more proof of her skills, she's probably the only person in the whole New Testament who outside of Jesus, who convinced Paul of anything, right? At the end, um, she says, you know, stay with us. And so Paul actually uh, agrees. And so it's, uh, again, one of the only people that actually ever convinced Paul of, of, of anything, uh, it seems. 
So, so why does uh, Luke conclude here this story of Lydia? What might be the significance of it for us? Well, uh, first of all, it's um, one more of, of the many people we're seeing in the book of Acts who come from such a variety of, of walks of life and locations. Um, and, and it's just, again, this reminder that the, the New Testament presents the church as the most diverse institution on the world. Uh, that that somehow this good news of Jesus Christ truly is for for all people of of all languages of all cultures of all tribes of all clans, and and that again the, the good news is for everybody, and that this proclamation of of the way of Jesus of Jesus's teachings, as well as most centrally, the death and resurrection of Jesus, somehow drew people in, um, far far and wide. Um, if you also uh, noticed, though, that um, the woman Lydia was was by the the place where the Jews would be praying, and so she is probably like the Roman centurion, somebody who um, was interested in ethical monotheism, but prior to Jesus coming, that seemed reserved for for somebody of the the tribe of Judaism, and, and so she felt like she couldn't break in. Um, just a, a reminder, too, that so often in our churches, our churches function like tribes um, on a denominational, on a congregational level. And, I, and there's people that would, would love to have the message of Jesus Christ, and they're hungry for it, but they don't feel like they can break into, into the tribe. And so I think uh, every church body should be asking themselves, what are the tribal barriers that we have that prevent people from, from accessing fully the, the gospel in our midst? But the other uh, thing that I think is just um, important in, in itself is that um, she's a woman. And uh, she is pretty competent. Uh, and later on, there's going to be, uh, you know, Paul's letter to the Philippians. And um, it seems like it's a pretty healthy congregation. Uh, in fact, maybe even Paul's sort of most beloved, the one that kind of gives him the least troubles. And uh, you wonder then, um, you know, what was the role of women in the early church? And this question isn't simply answered. It turns out that most of us, when we immediately start thinking about uh, leadership in the early church, are going to think of some of the men, like Paul and, and Peter and James. And they certainly had a huge, significant role. But if you start scratching the surface, suddenly you find that there's women, really, all over um, the, the sort of the, the core group with, with Jesus, both in, in the Gospels, right? It's the women who stay at the, the cross. It's the women who are, who are at the resurrection first. In fact, Luke tells us that it was women who were funding Jesus' ministry. That's in chapter 8. Um, and, and now here we have, again, um, a, a prominent uh, woman. Um, and then you'll find later on they're sort of at the margins in, in Paul's letters. It seems to be that he's consistently sort of at the end there, um, he sort of, at the end of his letters, he greets a lot of people. And, and there's, there's a real strong indication in those greetings that women were playing a really prominent role in the church. I don't want to sort of solve the conundrum of uh, what was the role of women in the New Testament. That's like, 
that would be its own, you know, multi-series podcast. But I, I just want to gently at least point to the fact that uh, in the New Testament, there are certainly key roles for women. And uh, every church has to decide, every body, every congregation in some ways, how we sort of pull together scripture, tradition, and current gender roles to figure out uh, what the role of women is going to be. I just would like to suggest, rather than get into a fight with all the variety of different people who are listening to the podcast, that the, the New Testament certainly has women in a prominent role, and, and likely even, if we start to scratch the surface, even more some what we would consider leadership roles. Um, and that the answer, just to say that it was all about men, is certainly uh, not true. So, I mean, maybe a, a question for you about, you know, who have been, in fact, uh, women in your life who have been powerful in your faith? And in fact, when have you seen women and where have you seen women in leadership roles in congregations that you're a part of? Again, there's lots that we could... Oh, one more thing, too, about Lydia. Uh, Lydia also is somebody who is uh, wealthy, but uh, is still hungry and still searching for something else. And I think it's just, again, this woman had... um, runs a transnational luxury good um, corporation. And so she's used to fine things. She's um, obviously, yeah, so seems like a successful business person. Um, she has a seemingly, um, yeah, uh, you know, a, a nice home. She has her own place where she lives and, and so forth. So the, so the question then is, you know, what is she still hungry for? And again, in our world, we're going to meet lots of people who seem like they have it all, but they still have hunger, they still have spiritual questions. And so just, uh, again, maybe an invitation to some questions here. Who are the people in your life who, who seem to have it all, but still have a great hunger? And when in your life have you felt like, wow, like to the outside world, it looks like I've got it made, but on the inside, in my home, in my heart, that I'm still yearning, still hungry, right? In the words of the song, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. From Acts 16. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was an earthquake so violent that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. When the jailer woke up and saw the prison doors wide open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself since he supposed that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted in a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights, and rushing in, he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They answered, Believe on the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. At the same hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and his entire family were baptized without delay. He brought them up into the house and set food before them, and he and his entire household rejoiced that he had become a believer in God. 
I would encourage you to read a bit more of chapter 16 on your own and read the story of how Paul got into prison. Um, That's its own fascinating story. It has to do with proclaiming the gospel and setting somebody free. But let's just pick up uh, with, with the fact that they're in prison. And uh, again, a reminder that uh, many people all around the world, and especially in the early church, uh, but even still today, um, there's a real consequence for talking about Jesus. Um, and uh, the, here they are, again, in prison. And uh, what's really beautiful here is that when they're in prison, they're praying and singing hymns to God. One of the powerful things about uh, singing is that you can more easily remember things. Uh, even if you're not an auditory learner, you know, songs stick with us. And uh, part of the, the joy then of sort of having you know, a lifetime of worship. Uh, and again, I'd say that I go to what might be called liturgical church where there's sort of this back and forth dialogue between the the leader and uh, the congregation, and there's like little songs that are sung throughout. Um, or, or if you go to again uh, a church that you know you sort of sing. Eh, what my point is that whether or not you go to a liturgical church, most churches have sort of a canon um, of things that you sing, and sometimes maybe that they're repeated too much, but. The joy and beauty of things that are, especially when they're sung, that are repeated is that they get into you. And then when you're in a moment of crisis, um, that suddenly that's, that's there. Um, and so I would just be, be curious, um, are there ways in, in which um, music, maybe specifically Christian music, um, sort of helps you in, in times? Um, what, what scriptural songs or, or hymns or, or psalms or verses do you have that are really uh, in your memory? And when uh, trouble comes that you can draw on them. Um, I know in our church, um, m- my wife, who's uh, a deacon at the church and does uh, ministry for children, does a by heart challenge in the summer to, to really help kids work on some memorization and, and the point is um, not just to look like you know stuff about the Bible or about this or that, but it's like in those moments of crisis, what do you have to draw on? And, and so, yeah, so I would just be curious, what, um, what resources do you have that have permeated, uh, sort of spiritual resources that have permeated if you had no cell phone, if you had no hymnal, if you had no Bible, um, like you had no CD player, uh, whatever, you're, you know, again, like what... What could be your strength to, to draw on there? So anyway, they're, they're praying, and then there is this earthquake. And, um, wow. At this point, Paul and Silas, uh, who actually, we haven't really introduced Silas, uh, just a traveling companion of Paul, could have made a break for it. They could have run far away, but they choose not to. They choose to stay. And, and the reason why they stay is because they're concerned about their captor. They're concerned about the jailer who, if they were to escape, would lose his life. I just want you to just process that. And, and what amount of faith 
that they were so confident that um, that somehow that it would be okay. We don't know what in those prayers in the Psalms. We kind of what what was in their hearts at that point to say, we can run away. Or we think there's something going on here where we can actually connect with and reach out to our jailer. You know, you might think this is too strange to believe, but but we've seen this story over and over again in, in Christian witness. Um, you know, it's like St. Patrick. When he uh, escapes from Ireland, he was captured by slave traders and, and sent in, uh, from where he was born in Wales and um, then he was uh, sold into slavery in Ireland, he actually goes back to Ireland. Right? And he goes to the people that were his captors, and uh, he eventually uh, converts uh, many of them and then ultimately leads a, a charge against slavery uh, there. So um, so this is just a, this, this powerful way in which the power dynamic is shifting and it's not the jailer who has power but suddenly Paul and Silas who because of their faith, because of the indwelling word in them, they're the ones that actually have power in the situation uh, and, and then um, the, the, the jailer at this point has had um, what I'm going to say an earthquake moment in his life where like all supports are stripped away and I think there are times in our lives where, um, and this goes back to what happens with Paul, where Paul sort of has the get off his high horse. There are times in our lives where everything seems to fall apart, where um, the, the ways we were doing things, the ways we understood the world, they're just not adequate anymore in light of new data. And I was talking to a person today, for him this was 9-11, uh, and it just sort of fell apart, um, like it no longer did things add up to sort of a benevolent or good God in this world. Uh, for many, it's been the, the pandemic or maybe a more personal thing in our lives. But, but again, there are sort of events in, in the world, earthquakes, uh, and, and they shake and they, and they, and they, they um, make us uncertain of, of all that sort of seem to be certain in this world. And, and, the jailer, though, is um, blessed because at his earthquake moment, there's somebody there to embrace him. There's uh, somebody there who can offer him a word of fellowship, a word of the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Uh, to me, I think this is so important that when people have an earthquake moment, when things sort of fall apart and life doesn't add up the way it did before, this is really where the Church of Jesus Christ needs to be uh, for people to, to offer them the news that it, with God and Jesus Christ, all is not lost, um, but really just to kind of sit with them and, and be with them and assure them that it's going to be okay, that indeed there, there is hope. And then we have this beautiful scene where um, the, the jailer cleanses and washes Paul and Silas, and then they cleanse him, and, and they baptize him, and suddenly it's no longer a captor and prisoner, but it's uh, brothers in, in Christ, and they're somehow sharing. And this really is the, the radical transforming love of God. And, and, and it, it took 
both Paul and Silas's faith and it took an earthquake in life. But, but those two things together, the Christian community there in the midst of trauma was what transformed the jailer, transformed the relationship between the, the two of them. And so I, I'm curious, um, you know, maybe have you had an earthquake moment in your life or something sort of in the world just rocked your sense of, of humanity and faith and church and God and like the way the world's supposed to work? Um, and and who who was in in what way was the church there for you? In what way was a a believer, maybe a community of believers, somebody there to offer you uh, a word of of grace and a word of of hope and and truth in that moment? Um, and the cool thing is that then because Paul's done some work here, and it's because there's already some Christians that. Um, you know, now this jailer gets to be part of the Christian community. And so you start to think about what this Christian community in Philippi is looking like. It's, uh, you know, international businesswoman, the town prison <laughs> a warden. And it just becomes this really beautiful mixture of people that have all in their lives somehow found a common ground that their, their deepest hunger was met in, in the living word of Jesus Christ. And that's again and again what, what Acts is drawing us toward, um, that, that we can find in this crazy, selfish, earthquake-filled, chaotic, uh, yes, even with slavery and, and abuse world, that we can find our hope and our center in, in Jesus Christ and, and the community that dwells in, in uh, his love and in his word. So I hope that gives you something to ponder anew today. Blessings.